You're listening to Let Them Eat Avocado Toast, a podcast dedicated to offering a no gimmicks and ethical approach to building personal wealth and overall adulting with your host, Kristen Atherton, brought to you by Camex LLC. Here we are again, girls. Another day, another dollar, another Sunday, another episode of Let Them Eat Avocado Toast. As always, I am your elder millennial big sis, Kristen Atherton here, and I am really excited to get started. Now, before we move forward, I would just like to say that for consistency's sake, I am going to be putting these out every other weekend, which would be bi-weekly or once a fortnight, if you will, if you so feel like you're English. I also wanted to let you guys know that I apologize right now for the inconsistency. That's how we're going to keep going forward from here on out. So we find ourselves back in the middle of the credit game. We are into part two. Part one, we talked all about the credit system, but it had to get split into parts because lo and behold, there's a shit ton to say about the credit system. And I know how to make anything last a lot longer than it really fucking needs to. So Without further ado, let's get into part two of the credit cave, all about credit cards and how they can be mm, good or bad. We'll also talk a little bit about predatory lending because I feel like that is well-placed here in this episode. So grab your mimosas. Let's get going. Now, I don't know if you're a fan of watching historical dramas on Netflix like I am, but if you are, you may have come across the show Medici. If you have not, or if you need a refresher, without spoilers, I'm hoping, the Medici were a prominent historical banking family in Florence, Italy, in the 15th and 16th century. So prominent, in fact, that one might call them the Medici dynasty, Now, at the time of the Medici reign in Florence, most of Europe was deeply committed spiritually and politically to the Catholic Church. According to Catholic doctrine, loaning money to people with interest was called a sin, and this sin was dubbed usury. Other religions, most particularly of note, would be the other Abrahamic religions, Judaism and Islam, They also had teachings that admonished the practice of usury. During this show, the Medici family are accused multiple times of being usurers, aka people who commit the practice of usury. So during that show, they were being accused of being like basically any and every bank that we have grown used to today. Now, the reason that usury or loaning people anything with interest was so frowned upon is because, as we've seen time and again in capitalist societies, some people would take advantage of borrowers. Who would that be? They would charge crazy interest rates, and they would hold people in a perpetual state of indebtedness to the lender. Now, these types of practices were considered predatory, and therefore it was considered unethical and immoral to charge interest at all. 
The reins on usury laws began to be loosened in the 16th century during the reign of King Henry VIII in England. Now, as you may be familiar, King Henry VIII broke ties with the Catholic Church, both politically and spiritually, in order to gain him the freedom to divorce his wife and queen, Catherine of Aragon, and marry his mistress, Anne Boleyn, instead. England, as all other Catholic-tied countries at the time, still had very deeply religious people, so breaking with the Catholic Church had consequences. One of those consequences was the excommunication of the King of England and of England itself. This declaration of excommunication meant that babies couldn't be baptized, a practice that was not just symbolic of washing away sins like we're used to today, it was actually considered to do so. Therefore, without baptism, babies would be considered sinners and they would go to hell or purgatory. So they were basically condemned for all of eternity. It also meant funeral rites could not be had. Again, afterlife concerns. And it meant that people could not confess their sins and make penance. Due to this, England really needed to modify the Catholic religion in order to fit its new political agenda. Lutheranism had also already been spreading across eastern parts of Europe, mostly in the Germanic regions. The Church of England was begun as a combination of Catholic rituals, some of these Protestant teachings, and it placed the reigning monarch at the top of the church, in the same way that the Pope was at the top of the church for the Catholic faith. Without the Pope and the strict Catholic teachings, England no longer really needed to follow the strict usury laws that were put forward in the Catholic faith. So they started to allow lenders to charge a small interest payment. Now fast forward half a millennia to today. Well, you can see from everything that we do that charging interest has become quite commonplace. Interestingly enough, there are still usury laws on the books of every single state of the United States of America, which are intended to protect consumers from predatory lending. The interest rate caps, though, they vary quite a bit. So private student loans are subject to usury laws. I did not find anything in my research discussing federal student loans. But the interesting part here is that credit cards are not subject to usury laws. To learn more about why credit cards are not subject to usury laws, we would have to take a deeper dive into the Supreme Court ruling in Marquette National Bank of Minneapolis versus First Omaha Service Corporation from 1978. However, I felt like that was a little too far down the rabbit hole for today's episode. So if that's something you really want to look up, feel free. Again, Marquette National Bank of Minneapolis versus First Omaha Service Corp from 1978 Supreme Court ruling. If your Netflix pushes similar movies and shows on you like mine does, you may have also seen the movie Molly's Game pop up on your feed. If not, highly suggest it. I've had the chance to watch this movie several times through now. It's really safe to say that I enjoyed it. But anyway, I wanted to share a quote from it. The premise behind the movie again, trying to do this without spoilers, is a young woman who basically built up an underground high-stakes poker game full of celebrities, trust fund babies, and wealthy businessmen. This woman's name is Molly Bloom, and it's based on a true story. 
In one instance, Molly is discussing a loan that one of her players made to another player. This player is called Player X. And here's the bulk of the discussion. Player X. I get 50% of his wins until the debt's paid off, and then 50% for the next two years with no exposure. Molly. You're getting 50% of the wins and no exposure on the losses? Yeah. First of all, he'll never climb out of that. That's sharecropper math. It's also usury. It's racketeering. Now that's the end of the movie quotes for this episode, and thanks for putting up with all of my crazy voices. Uh, Probably not that good. No worries. Doesn't matter. But I bring it up to offer a few more predatory lending concepts beyond the fact that she said usury as well. So some of you may remember your U.S. history classes better than others. So for those of you who don't, I'll refresh your memory here. The sharecropper system developed in the post-antebellum, post-Civil War, Reconstruction era here in the good old U.S. of A. Now this would have been sometime between 1865 and 1877. Plantation owners in the South had vast amounts of farmland that they could not possibly work all on their own. They could not afford to pay the white labor force required to work the land. Their former slaves, now freed after the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863, were rumored to be promised 40 acres and a mule by the American government to start out a new life as farmers, which was the trade that most of them had only ever known. A side note here, most people think the Emancipation Proclamation freed all slaves, but that's actually untrue. The Emancipation Proclamation freed slaves in the Southern, quote, rebellious states. There were still slaves held in Northern states, particularly the border states between the Union and the Confederacy, up until the 13th Amendment was passed. In addition, not all slaves were given word of their freedom, and in some cases, they were not allowed to live a free life until U.S. troops were dispatched to enforce the emancipation. Even in their freedom, these rumored reparations never came to be. Former slaves wound up working the land as before, and sometimes they worked for the same plantation owner that had been their former slave master, which filled the void of workers on the plantation and gave them the opportunity to earn wages. Now, this new system is known as sharecropping, and these farmers were quite literally sharing the crops yielded each harvest with the landowner. The landowner would supply the farmer and his family with a house, often their old slave quarters, seeds, farming tools, and other necessary materials. The landowner would take the harvest to market, sell it, and bring back the earnings. The landowner would then split the harvest earnings 50-50. Then they would take out the cost of the seeds and the tools from the farmer's earnings and not the overall harvest earnings. So you can imagine if the landowner had 100 sharecroppers working the land and they all made the same amount just for the ease of this conversation, that landowner is now making more than 50 times any one of his sharecrop farmers were making solely for loaning out the land to be farmed and selling the crops on the market. Farming did not supply a steady or predictable stream of income, so the farmer, sharecropper, would usually wind up making barely enough for him and his family to survive. 
and never enough to get out from under this indebtedness to the landowner. It was, in many ways, slavery by another name. Racketeering, on the other hand, broadly refers to criminal acts, typically those involving extortion. Predatory lending may be deemed a form of racketeering, particularly when a lender tricks a borrower into taking a loan that deliberately ignores or actively hinders the borrower's ability to pay it. For the purpose of not leaving you with a confusing term, attempting to define another confusing term, extortion is the practice of obtaining benefit, such as money or property, through coercion or intimidation. Fraud is deceit with the intention to illegally or unethically gain at the expense of another. So why am I telling you all of this? Here's the reason. I want you to have a good idea of what the technical definitions of these terms are and to see how they can be applied in different scenarios. As I mentioned in the opening credits each week, my goal is to give you an ethical approach to building your wealth. Sometimes, in order to understand what is ethical, it is a good idea to take a look at what unethical approaches look like so that you don't trick yourself into believing you're doing something ethical when you're actually doing the opposite. I also wanted you to learn all of those terms and scenarios because credit cards. Before diving into the wide world of credit cards, let's take a step back first to your bank account. There are two main types of bank accounts that are the basic building blocks for everything else you're ever going to do in your financial life. And those are your savings account and your checking account. Your savings account requires a little more work to get the money out of than your checking account, so mildly less liquid, but not by much. Your checking account is so named because, get this, people actually used to write checks to one another. And some people still do. So just in case we have some majorly young Gen Z or is it's not possible for Gen Alpha to be listening yet, is it? No. Majorly young Gen Zers out there, checks are a piece of paper that your bank's routing number and your account number are on. You fill out a check for a certain amount of money that you want to pay. This could be, say, at the grocery store. Instead of having to carry the exact amount of cash you wanted to pay with, you could write a check. In the first episode, I used the term promissory note. A check is just such a thing. You are promising that you have that amount of money available in an account in the bank, which your check will debit the money from. This usually took a few days to complete the transaction, so you would keep a record of any checks that you wrote on your own, written down, and you would try to make sure you did not spend more money than you had available in your checking account. There was usually some limit to how long you could wait to cash a check, so sometimes you'd have to wait up to four months for the money promised in that check to actually be pulled out of your account, and you just had to make sure the money was there when it finally did get pulled. There would be days where you would have to sit down and reconcile your records, say, with your husband's, and make sure your checking account still had money available. 
There were fines and penalties levied against your account if you did not have enough money to pay the check when it finally debited your account. If you had a savings account, the bank could pull money out of your savings to pay for the check that you overextended yourself on, but it would also charge you a fee for having to perform what they call an overdraft. So this whole process became a lot more automated with the dot-com era in the 1990s. The invention of the internet, the affordable home computer, and the invention of debit cards slowly but surely replaced checks. Debit cards worked faster than checks did. You could use your card and it would immediately pull money from your checking account. The card would get declined if you didn't have enough money in your account to cover it. Obtaining a debit card is pretty straightforward. If you open a checking account, usually your bank or credit union will issue you a debit card. That's about it. That's all there is to it. A lot of debit cards these days are set up through credit card companies, and they use the same technology available for credit cards, which has made them a little bit safer in case your card is lost or stolen. Now, the credit card concept was formed as early as 1914. But it wasn't until 1958 that American Express launched its first charge card in the United States. The magnetic stripe on the back of the cards was invented in the 1960s, and it really only took a decade after that before Congress had to intervene and begin making laws surrounding the issuance and use of credit cards. The main premise behind credit cards is that instead of having to pull money that is already in your account, you can spend the money and take a little bit more time to earn it before you have to pay it back. As I said last episode, credit and credit cards allow you to borrow money from the future, but it's also from your future. A credit card, by definition, is a card issued by a financial institution, typically a bank, that enables a cardholder to borrow funds from that institution. Cardholders agree to pay the money back with interest according to the institution's terms. Now, as it turns out, there are a lot of different types of credit cards that could be issued these days. I'll try to give you a basic idea of each one. The first type is what was introduced in 1958, a charge card. The charge card has no preset spending limit on it, but it typically won't allow you to carry a balance into the next month. Now that means that each month you'd have to pay the balance of the charge card in full, just like you got a giant bill from your utility company. The next type is a standard credit card, which extends a line of credit up to a certain amount for the user to make a purchase or to transfer a balance from another credit card to this one or to receive a cash advance. Now after the standard credit card, you could have a few that offer perks to the user. This includes premium and reward credit cards, and they're slightly different. Premium cards would be something like the United Credit Card. So it gives you access to airport lounges, concierge services, things like that. Rewards cards, on the other hand, would be something like the Capital One Venture Card. So this one gives you two reward miles for every dollar spent on the card, which can later be redeemed for travel, cash back, or other rewards. Now, these cards usually come with a monthly uh, or annual fee associated with them. There are cards that are strictly set up for balance transfers from another credit card. 
And usually these will offer low interest rates and fees early on. The last type of card is what they call a secured credit card, which requires an upfront cash deposit, which is used as collateral for the lender. So it tends to be lower rates because they get the collateral upfront. So just to be thorough, collateral is something that you would put on the line if you are unable to pay a loan back as a sort of security deposit for the lender, which offers the lender a little less risk. Remember, that's all what credit is about anyway, is assessing your risk to a lender. So even with all of these perks that you might have access to by using a credit card, there can be, well, there are severe consequences if you misuse the card. And the reality is that there are very few protections in place to save you if you find yourself subjected to those consequences. Generally, to obtain a credit card, you would first fill out an application. Financial institution you're requesting a credit card from will review your application, your credit report, and your credit score. So yes, this is where a ding on your credit score would happen because you're requesting a new line of credit. The institution will then either approve or deny your application. You'll get the terms that they are willing to offer you if they approve your application at that time. Now, some of these terms will be disclosed prior to your application, such as the APR for good standing credit, annual fee structure as applicable, and any other terms such as the rewards, the premium benefits, that sort of thing. What you may not know until you get the approval back is the actual card limit that the institution will be willing to extend to you. So somebody with good credit may get a $5,000 limit, whereas somebody with an excellent credit may get a $10,000 credit limit on the same card. And they'll also give you the final APR or APY that they are approving you for. And it just depends on how good or poor your credit might be at the time. Many cards will have both balance limitations and transactional limitations, meaning that even though you can borrow up to $5,000 total, for example, you would not be authorized to spend all $5,000 in one transaction. You may only be allowed to spend $1,000 in a single transaction, let's just say. The APR and APY for the card are very important to note. So the difference between APR and APY is this. If you left a balance on your credit card for one month, your institution would charge you the rate given as APR on that balance for that month. This is referred to as accrual as in you have accrued interest on your balance or on your account. So the next month, if you neither spend any more money nor pay any more money, the bank will assess your interest for this month based on the balance this month, which is higher than last month because of the accrued interest. So therefore, your interest accrued this month will be slightly higher than last month, and your balance will grow with that newly accrued interest as well. If you maintain this practice of not paying and not paying off for an entire year, they would call that compounding interest. The APY rate listed will look slightly higher than the APR rate given. The APY rate is a calculated rate that shows what that full year of interest accumulation would effectively look like because they compounded the interest each month. So if you wanted to see what an initial $1,000 balance would look like if you let interest accrue and compound for a year, the APY rate would get you there immediately without having to do all of the iterative accrual calculations. It's just another mathy thing. 
So I won't say that it's not important, but when you're assessing credit cards, the key point that you need to understand is that the higher the APR and APY, the more dangerous that card could be to your financial health if you don't pay it off. I don't necessarily want to put the fear of God in you around credit cards, but you should have a healthy level of fear surrounding them because of that compounding interest rate and because those interest rates are pretty fucking high. So average interest rates today are around 18% for new offers for credit cards and around 14.5% for existing accounts. To give you a comparison, when I bought my first home, my interest rate on my mortgage was something like 4.5%, and that was considered kind of high at the time. As of May 11th, a couple weeks ago here, mortgage rates on average are sitting around 5.5%. Another comparison, car loans are sitting around not quite 4% for new cars and just over 8% for used cars as of a couple weeks ago. But even the people with the lowest of the low subprime credit rates would be looking at around 125 to 20% for a car note, depending on whether it's new or used. So depending on where your credit score is, your credit card APR could be even worse than that. And to top it off, the average APR for cards you get from a retailer like Target is almost 25%. Average. That's not for low credit scores. That's for good credit scores. 25 fucking percent. I guess what I'm trying to say is that credit cards are the highest interest rate loans you are likely to see before usury laws come into effect. And remember what I said before, based on the ruling in 1978, credit cards are not subject to usury laws. But, you know, since we're in the middle of overturning precedent from the 1970s Supreme Court rulings at the moment, maybe we should revisit that one as well, since that one would likely help American citizens. But I digress. So if you're going to get yourself a credit card, assuming that you do not already have one, my first line of advice is to proceed with caution. Do some research. Find the lowest possible rates that you can. And treat that credit card like a debit card as best as you can. How would I do that, Kristen? You might ask. Well, I will tell you. When I got my first credit card, I would go every few days at least once a week, to my credit card account online, and I would transfer money to pay off the balance from my checking account. That way, I was seeing in about as much real time as writing checks would have offered me where my checking account stood. If I started to get low in my checking account, I'd have to cut back on my spending, plain and simple. One time while I was in high school, my parents had a party. Now, they actually hosted a lot of parties, but this one in particular stuck out to me. I happened to overhear several of the moms from the neighborhood having a conversation, and one of the mothers was describing how her daughter had written a check and was just hoping it didn't get cashed until she got paid the next week. I think she may have even forward dated it, just in case. So the daughter was not at the party. I only got the mom's version of this in my eavesdropping. But that mom said something that has stuck with me for the last 20 years now. 
She was basically describing her conversation with her daughter, and she said, Oh, no, honey, we don't float. As in, we do not try to float our finances, hoping we aren't going to get caught and sink. As in, if the money isn't in the account, don't write a check for it. There was also a little bit of, like, us, like, we're better than everybody else kind of sentiment. But, you know, if you follow these rules, you will be too. So own it, I suppose. You know, the same concept really needs to apply to credit cards and not just writing checks. If the money isn't readily available in your checking account to pay off your credit card right this second, you don't need to be spending that money. You actually have no business spending that money, particularly since if you're using a credit card to do it, it could cost you up to 25 cents for every dollar you borrow. You're basically buying money from the future in order to have the credit card company buy something for you today. So if you spent $400 on your credit card, but you can't pay it off until next month and you have a 25% interest rate, let's just say, you don't owe $400, you owe $500. So whatever you just spent 400 bucks on costs you 25% more. One month of waiting costs you an extra 100 fucking dollars. And it just balloons from there. So by contrast, if you put $100 a week away to save toward that purchase, that extra month of waiting didn't cost you anything extra, except for what you didn't spend that $100 on each week. So in the same way that I mentioned living like you're in college for as long as possible, treat your credit card like a debit card and pay it off in full constantly until you have enough of a savings cushion and enough financial discipline to not spend more than you earn, but to maybe be able to pay it off in full less often. For example, today I no longer look at my credit card statement every single week. In fact, I have an automatic debit for the amount of the previous month's bill set up in case I forget to make a payment. Not the minimum, the entirety of the bill, which could be a few thousand dollars at any given point. I do occasionally go in and just pay off the balance in full, like the day that I go look, whenever that is. But I also pay an extra 10%. My credit card company actually allows me to pay a little bit in advance on this particular card. And because I use this credit card for every single purchase because of the double miles, I know I'm going to be spending more than that 10% extra. So I usually just pay all of that, you know, 110% of whatever the balance is that day. And that way I can get double miles because I love to travel. Again, it's still basically a debit card to me. I just don't go in there and look as often because I have a little bit of a cushion to allow me to do that. Here's a quick aside. I once got into a pretty heated discussion with a sorority sister of mine a few years back regarding this particular subject, which would be paying off credit cards in full. Now, she came forward with the argument that you should always carry a balance each month. I'm here to tell you, and she's not here to get mad at me again, but I'm here to tell you that that is an absolute myth, and that's been circulating for years. And I think they do that to you on purpose. I think that myth is out there just to fuck up with people. And I'm going to tell you why I know that it's a myth. Because I've been doing this for fucking years. I've been paying off my credit card since the day I got it. My parents told me about this. There are no penalties for paying your card off in full. Absolutely none. There are penalties for not paying your card off. This myth has been circulating for years. 
you know, other people have stated this on the internet, like whatever, it's all fucking fake news and the most detrimental kind. What I think the myth is actually trying to say that somehow got construed in the telephone game is this, keeping your card open with no balance and never actually using it is not going to help build your credit score. And it's typically frowned upon by credit card companies. That, that I can get behind. That's pretty much true. If you don't borrow the money, you can't show how good you are at paying it off. But keeping a balance on your account every month, as in paying off, quote, like, like almost everything, let's say like leaving 50 bucks in there for the company to assess interest on, that's not a requirement at all. These assholes are already getting a transaction fee from every single business you purchase from. And if your card has an annual fee, they're getting that too. You don't need to allow them to assess even more interest on your money. It's your fucking money. Do not give it away to them. It will not hurt your credit to pay off your card consistently. And actually, it will help. It will hurt your bank account to leave a balance for them to assess interest on. It won't hurt your credit to leave a zero balance on a card that you basically never use but it probably won't help your credit much either. You have to at least use it once a month and pay it down for it to really do you a solid on your credit score. But other than that, you don't need a credit card. For the longest time, I would only use my credit card sparingly, and I would use my debit card for most purchases. If you're prone to overdoing it and you want to protect yourself from, well, yourself, then maybe start there. I've also seen a commercial lately for a card that acts as both a credit and debit card. It basically borrows money from a lender for about a day and then it direct debits that amount to pay off that one day loan so that you almost can't overspend. I haven't really looked into it in great detail if you know what I'm talking about. It sounds great in theory. I'll just throw this one caveat in there. As with everything else in this credit game, these things are typically not designed to help the consumer. They're designed to help companies earn more money. So, caveat emptor, buyer beware. Do your research on it if it's something you're interested in to help you build credit. Now, another note is a lot of financial advisors, financial blogs, financial podcasts, all these things that are all out there, most of these people are going to tell you you should not shy away from credit cards. I disagree, but only to an extent. Credit cards are the easiest way for you to build your credit score, but you have to be so, so careful with them. And that's why I keep pushing using them like a debit card. So if you cannot use them responsibly, work on using a debit card only for now until you get better about it. Now, getting out of credit card debt is much trickier than getting into credit card debt. And based on the definitions of predatory lending that I gave you earlier, I personally would classify loans that charge 15 to 25% interest as pretty fucking predatory, even though it's technically legal. The easiest way to get out of credit card debt is to not get into credit card debt in the first place, which is why I am so adamant about treating credit cards like debit cards and paying them off constantly if you're going to use them at all. Understandably, it is not really fair that in order to qualify for a car loan or a mortgage, you would have to have a credit card to help build up your credit. But that's the system we live in. And since that's the system we live in, you can maneuver through it and make it work to your advantage. 
However, if credit cards have at this point taken advantage of you, here are a few things you could do to get you started climbing your way out. Now, one thing that I touched on earlier is called a balance transfer card. I would suggest doing quite a bit of research on these, but there are some cards that could help you to consolidate your credit card debt into one place and potentially lower your interest rate. Some of them even offer 0% APR for a certain period of time in the beginning, which will help stop the ballooning out of control for a little while at least. It's like cauterizing a wound. It'll stop the bleeding for a little bit. There are also credit counseling agencies available. So if you don't think you can do it alone, definitely seek some help. Now, the biggest thing here is always pay the minimum payment. This minimum payment toward your balance, it's not going to make a dent in your accumulating debt, but it allows you to at least build a record of on-time payments for your credit history, ultimately showing that you are borrowing in good faith and you can make minimum payments. Paying only the minimum payment each month will never get you out from under the credit card debt. So you will have to prioritize this debt payment over every other debt you have. What I mean by that is pay the bare minimum payments on all of your debts, but any additional money that you can stand to put toward paying down debts needs to go to your credit card debts first because These are the ones that are going to grow to an astronomical level and quickly overwhelm you and drown you if you don't pay them down. So remember what I told you that if you need those shoes after all that budgeting in episode two, that you should just go the fuck and get them? Yeah, uh, if you have ballooning credit card debt, please value yourself more than buying those shoes. Please prioritize getting out of debt. I can't make you, but I'm going to throw another lovely term that we millennials like to toss around, and that's self-care. Buying those shoes over paying down your credit card debt is self-harm, not self-care. It takes time. It takes determination. It takes bravery. And it takes grit to stare your debt in the face and to work to conquer it. If you get annual bonuses at work, put them toward your credit card debt first, your student loan debt second, and your savings third, not splurging on anything fun. If you get a sudden influx of money in some other way, put it toward paying down your credit card debt first, your student loan debt's second, and your savings third, not splurging on something fun. Nowhere in there am I encouraging you to spend any influx of money on the shoes. That is literally the opposite of self-care, even if you feel like it's a treat-yourself-girl kind of moment. If you're in debt, particularly with credit cards, you have to fight the urge to put off the issue that your past self created for your current self to another future self. Past you treated herself at the expense of current you. Current you should be thinking, hey, bitch, what the fuck? And also not wanting to perpetuate this by harming future you. Current you is the only one that can save future you from financial ruin. And I wish I was being dramatic. A sugar daddy can't save you, particularly for those of us who are 35 plus. Our chances of landing a sugar daddy are growing thinner by the day. A man or woman can't save you. 
You are your only hope. If you are currently unmarried, particularly if you are as solidly single as I am, this is not dating advice, but it is. You cannot expect a man or a woman to want to tie themselves to your financial ball and chain that is holding you underwater, drowning you slowly day by day. No one should be expected to sign up for that drama. You are the only one who can save you right now. You have to show up for yourself. You need to fight for yourself. You need to fight for your life and fight for your fucking financial freedom. You have got to get out from under this. But you have to show up for this fight and you need to be brave. And girl, I am here for it and I am here for you. Now, as I've said, credit is a game. There are ways to maneuver through this system to make it work for you, but it's designed so that the house will always win, just like in Vegas. If you don't have it, you shouldn't spend it. Credit cards are technically loaning you money, but you should never look at them as a lifeline or as a way to borrow. You should only ever look at them as a necessity to build credit. Again, if you don't have the money, don't spend the money. You need to be able to cover every single purchase on your credit card every single time in that exact moment. Otherwise, you should not be purchasing it at all. You should be delaying that purchase until you have enough to spend on that purchase. You should especially not be borrowing. If you need to cut up your credit card and just work on paying it off, do it. Fucking do it. If you're in severe credit card debt, Getting out from under that debt should be your number one financial goal. It should be your priority until it's all taken care of. Once you're starting from zero, proceed forward with extreme caution. It was easy to get into debt. It was a nightmare to get out of. Don't put yourself back into that nightmare again. You deserve better from yourself. And again, there are resources available if you need help. Looking forward into the next episode in a couple of weeks, we will dive into the different types of accounts that can grow your money. We'll also talk about time value of money and high-level retirement goals, including why you should be thinking about it now, no matter what age you might be. If there's time, because I historically bite off more than I can chew, there might not be enough time for this, but if there is time, we will skim the surface on investing, particularly with retirement accounts. And we'll also touch on why women tend to be better investors than men. And that's statistics, ladies and gentlemen. Statistically speaking, the them's real facts, okay? That's not fake news. So until then, be careful with those credit cards. And if you haven't, go check your credit score. And as always, may your mimosas and your bank accounts always be bottomless. Cheers. This has been Let Them Eat Avocado Toast, brought to you by Camex LLC. Any questions, comments, concerns, or requests for consultations should be directed to our email address at lte.avo.toast at gmail.com. All sources used for this podcast are available upon request. All opinions expressed in this podcast are the express opinions of the host 
and do not represent the opinions of Camex LLC. All music used is stock music from GarageBand by Apple. Kristen Atherton and Camex LLC remind you to please drink responsibly. Thank you.